an old university friend of ours um, recently became, it's a more friend of Sarah actually, at um, a university in York. Um, they became, and I quote this, I quote this, it's not a joke, a church leader with an apostolic call, an international speaker of authority and a prophet to nations. They continue on their rather humble and self-deprecating website. Uh, their vision is to host, hear this, their vision is to host the presence of God. And to equip and inspire and train and release those who will bring kingdom transformation. The bold title that goes right across the centre of this, their homepage reads like this. This person, they're not shy about you know, say, saying who they are. Yeah, this person is a prophet who operates with authority and authenticity. There's something laughable, isn't there, about a leader who has to state how wonderful they are. A few months ago, uh, world leaders at the UN were actually caught audibly laughing when a certain world leader stood up, who will remain unnamed, and began claiming that his administration had accomplished more than almost any other in a certain country's history. A leader should not have to defend their authenticity and their authority by bragging and boasting. It should be demonstrably obvious by who they are and what they have done and are doing. Now here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is reaching at the end of this letter uh, that has seemed at times like a huge defence of his apostleship. But as we get to the end of chapter 12, we see his heart. Finally now he's kind of dropping, not always, but most of the time he's dropping his kind of ironic and sarcastic tone. And he's, he's actually being very straight with the church here now. And he longs for this church to understand and to be able to discern, discern sorry, um, what is an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ. And that is what he's going to point out today again and again through who he is. But why? Because it's very easy, isn't it, to, to create your own website and claim all sorts of powerful things about yourselves. It's easy, isn't it, to stand at a podium and say you're quite literally the best political leader that the world has ever seen. Likewise, it's very easy to walk into a first century church, to a church today as well, like Corinth. And masquerade yourselves with saying that you're authentic, that you are authoritative. And Paul longs for the church to see that the teachers who were criticising him were not authentic. They had no authority, despite their claims, despite how impressive they may look and sound. Paul has mentioned a number of times throughout this letter that he will return to Corinth. And that will be his third visit to this church, the, se- the section, this section is his final plea in a sense for the church to listen to him, for them to recognise that he is the real deal, that he is the authentic apostle of Jesus Christ. Not these teachers who were undermining him in the church. And the point is this, as we kind of get near the end, is if the church don't listen, then Paul's third visit will be incredibly tough. Not only for Paul, but also for the church. You see, this is loving warning. 
This is Paul spelling out to the church what an authentic apostle should look like. And he does this by showing three characteristics. They're the three points. They're written down in your sheets. They should appear on the screen as well. Three characteristics that we see in Paul to show that he is the authentic, authoritative apostle of Jesus Christ. He shows them his endurance, his integrity and his authority. Let's look firstly at his endurance. Last week, as I said, we came to the high point of this whole letter. God says, just look back if you can, chapter 12, verse 9. You'll see it there. It's the high point. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's this paradox, isn't it? When Paul is weak, God displays his strength in and through him. This is so alien in our culture, isn't it? And it would have been then in Corinthian culture. Weakness was actually seen as you know, a vice. Some writers would say it was effeminate, and that was kind of a negative term in those days. But we see the wonderful assurance that Christ's power rests or comes literally to dwell, tabernacle, in our weakness and gives us strength to endure. Paul finishes, doesn't he, in verse 10. Look down there. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now Paul is been speaking as what people know as his full speech throughout chapter 11 and into chapter 12. And he's had to turn to boasting. The very thing, the, the method that these teachers within Corinth are using, he's turned to boasting. It's a foolish practice in his eyes, but a necessity because that's what the Corinthian church were kind of, that's all that they could hear, a bit of boasting. They were deaf to anything else. And he begins boasting about his ancestry in chapter 11, who he is as a fleshly person. And he outdoes these leaders in every way. But then very quickly he turns to boasting in his weakness. And by the end of verse 10, all the shyness is gone. He boasts in his weaknesses, in his insults that he's received, the hardships, the persecutions, the difficulties. And he's saying, none of this undermines the fact that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Rather, it authenticates the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we get to verse 11 at the beginning of our passage today, and and he continues in that vein. He says, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not uh, in in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. You hear the discomfort coming out again of having to boast? But he had no choice. They've literally driven him to it. But what they've done is utterly inexcusable. They should never have doubted Paul. They should have commended him immediately. These false teachers, they've come into the church. And what they should have done in Corinth, they should have heard them. And immediately gone, right, you lot, get out. These teachers are undermining Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ that he had proclaimed. And so Paul rightly says here, doesn't he? I ought to have been commended by you. For I'm not in in the least inferior to the super apostles. He'd established a church. Paul had uh, displayed these um, um, wonderful miracles and, and visions. They were authenticated of the message of the gospel that he proclaimed. These this church had seen so much through Paul and his ministry amongst them. I mean, look at verse 12. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. It's very straight talking now, isn't it? 
including signs, wonders and miracles. Uh, to, to Paul, this church, were the, his, as he said earlier on in this book, they were his letter of recommendation. He didn't need other letters from other people. Uh, and they quickly shifted from listening to him, being loyal to him, to, to hearing these new teachers. Oh yes, they may have been more eloquent, they may have dressed in more finery and so on. But Paul had the unique marks of a true apostle. Signs, wonders, miracles here. They were the authenticating markers of God's redemptive work. Those, those three kind of, uh, that triple of the words there have been used elsewhere throughout the Bible, particularly in Exodus. Authenticating work of God's, in, in God's redemptive plan. And so Paul had the hallmark, you see, of being God's worker. He was the authentic one. Not these so-called super apostles. Paul adds one specific word in here to show the church that he is authentic. It's there at the beginning of verse 12. Have a glance down. I persevered, he says. I persevered. I had a really sobering moment this week. I was reading in preparation for uh, this talk and you know, I got out a commentary. A commentary is a kind of a scholarly book of uh, making kind of uh, points about the text of the, the passage we're looking at. It suddenly dawned on me that I was reading a commentary written by someone who I knew relatively well. It was at one time revered. Set up a conference called Word Live, which some of you may know. He's now given up on preaching and he's given up on God. Living as a, a Christian is hard in our culture. The clearest mark of authentic faith is that you just keep going. Likewise, as an apostle, and as a, if you're in leadership, persevered, Paul says. That is, he never gave up. And that's extraordinary, isn't it, with Paul? Go back to chapter 11. You see that huge list in chapter 10 as well. Uh, he was flogged. How many times? It was extraordinary. Shipwrecked three times. You know, beaten. It's just there again and again and again. Yet he kept on going. The great reformer John Calvin uh, describes perseverance as the heroic virtue. Some Bibles you might turn to translate this as the utmost patience. Patience, perseverance, endurance. Doesn't matter. Paul wasn't just uh, preaching with accompanying powerful signs. His ministry, his life was authenticated by the gospel he proclaimed. And it was authenticated in its fruit. Manifest in his life. The fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, patience, perseverance. He kept on going. Paul was the authentic apostle, the servant of Christ, evidenced in his endurance. The second mark of his authenticity was his integrity. We're going to look at now verses 13 through to 18. Do cast your eyes down. We'll kind of run through it fairly quickly. And his integrity here is demonstrated in his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the church. Spelt out here again, he turns back to his default, it seems to me, in this letter, uh, Spade loads of sarcasm coming out here. Verse 13. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? 
Forgive me for this wrong. Paul, you see, never wanted payment for preaching and teaching in Corinth. But it seems from what he's saying here with that sarcastic tone that this was actually now being used against him, that he didn't take money from the church. The false teachers who who were there, they they expected big payments uh, for their preaching and teaching. And the culture of the time kind of measured the, the ability of a preacher according to how much they got paid. The more they got paid, it meant they, more, they had more to say. But Paul didn't charge. He could have. That was a cultural norm. But he wanted to allow the church in Corinth to see the distinction between him and these teachers in particular, who charged huge sums of money. And Paul wanted to make sure that he wasn't considered like these teachers in any way. And so he sacrificed. He sacrificed financial provision from the church to make sure his integrity as an apostle was not tarnished and so verse 13 he mockingly says forgive me for doing good forgive me for sacrificing for you for not being a burden forgive me for that please and then you get this lovely shift in verse 14 he makes a similar point but it's a completely different tone You've heard Paul's kind of sarcasm, the irony there. Now listen to his love, to his tenderness towards the church. Verse 14. Now I'm ready to visit you for a third time. And I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He doesn't want their money. He wants them. He wants them to know and to love and to follow Jesus. To devote themselves to their saviour. Quite the opposite of these false teachers that appeared in Corinth. Uh, they, they, they wanted the church's money. They probably wanted the church's devotion to be toward them as well. Now here in Corinth the situation is more extreme. But be, be aware please of more subtle uh, incidences like, of like this. Pastoral ministry is, is all about prayerfully longing that the people of your church flourish in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ and in their honouring and serving him. Many ministers and pastors may speak that way, but the temptation, and hear me, this is kind of being open here, The temptation for any church pastor or minister will always be to make the church about you as a leader. About building the church that you lead. And be aware of the very subtle difference. But Paul here is very clear. His ministry is about the people. About building them up, about teaching them, loving them, encouraging them. Yes, maybe sometimes saying some pretty hard things to them as well. Read 1 Corinthians. Those early chapters are very strong. But also don't be naive. Be warned of any church or organisation that seems more concerned about its numerical growth or its public profile over and above sacrificially loving and encouraging the people to live out their faith. Look at verse 15. You see Paul's 
life here. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. There's a little play on words here in the original. It's very strong. Paul is willing to give up everything for this church, his life, his wealth, his health. Paul will die early. That was the reality. Paul will probably get beaten a number of times from this point of writing to his death. He will spend everything. He will then suffer a martyr's death. Literally, this reads, he will hemorrhage himself, exhaust himself, sacrifice himself. He is making clear his love for them. And so he asks at the end of verse 15, if I love you more, will you love me less? He asks whether his, you see, his overwhelming love for them is going to mean that he will be loved any less by them. Are they still going to be swayed? Are they going to, you know, look to the show and the empty claims of these false teachers in Corinth? However impressive they look, Or are they going to look at Paul and begin to understand his love for them and his integrity and the authentic signs of his apostleship that they should be looking for? He continues, look at verse 16. Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Now, it's strange this, isn't it? It appears that Paul is actually being accused of being crafty. That is, by not accepting payment from the church in Corinth, he was now being accused that that might be a ploy in some way to sort of maybe charge more later. You know, lure them in with a kind of cheap deal and then kind of like double it up later on. That's what appears to be going on. But Paul is no dodgy salesman here. He hasn't asked for money and will not do, and nor is any of the people that he has sent to them. And if, if you want to ask, want to look more about his kind of like integrity on financial matters, turn back to chapters 8 and 9. He spells it out for them in two chapters there. Paul wanted nothing but the church to grow in their love for the Lord Jesus. As he finishes verse 18, did we, did we not walk in the same footsteps by, and by the same spirit? Paul and every single person that he sent to Corinth had all acted in the same way with complete integrity. He was there for them to teach them and to love them. Paul is now expecting the church to acknowledge that fact. And to see in him that he was the authentic apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul's integrity had been challenged, but it was the indicator of his authenticity. Think about your own integrity for a moment. It's so undervalued, isn't it, today's culture? Now, we should be very thankful that we live in a country with good regulation and good law that protects against exploitation and abuse in its extreme. But do you seek to love and serve those around you? In sacrificial ways. And not just those who it would be in a professional or a politically expedient way to love and flatter them. Think how you treat the cleaner who comes into the office. 
person who empties your bin. Think about how you treat the postman, perhaps. Or the person who collects the rubbish. Are you someone known for their integrity? Are you trustworthy? Are you honest? Are you loyal? Perhaps at work you need to be careful. It happens in ministry as well, but I'm sure it happens in your professional circumstances. Flattery is used everywhere. And you can be bought by colleagues very quickly who will then use it against you in the future. Paul's integrity was not a weakness, but rather a sign of his authenticity. Let's go to the last one, shall we? Last indicator of his authenticity, Paul's authority. Paul now turns, so you've seen it, he asks a question, doesn't he? Look down at verse 19, it's, a, it's quite a, it feels a jar, but he kind of is continuing. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? And Paul makes it clear why he's been writing all along. We've been, a, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for you. It's for your strengthening, he says. Now, Paul's self-defence through this letter has happened not because he felt any need for their kind of approval. Why? Because actually he knew that they needed his help. It's for their strengthening that he's writing. It's not for Paul's reputation. It is they who are in the dock, essentially, not Paul. And Paul has essentially been saying here, you Corinthians, you guys are in serious trouble here with these teachers who have come into the church. And unless you begin to respect me and listen to me, well, I can do nothing to help you. And Paul is saying that he is the authentic apostle. And if this church don't realise that and start respecting him and listening to him, he will be forced to approve kind of prove to them his apostolic authority and that will not be pretty for them because it probably would have meant something like church discipline. An apostolic church discipline, just so we get the right kind of context here, uh, the the power that the the apostles had, read about it if you want, with Ananias and Sapphira in in Acts chapter 5, that is pretty severe. They fall down dead. At the least, it will probably mean throwing these false teachers out of church. If they do not listen to Paul here in this gentle warning in this letter, it is going to get messy and hard. Paul doesn't want to come that way and show his authority in that way. Listen to his heart in verse 20. For I'm afraid that when I come, I will not find you as I want you to be and you will not... Find me as you want me to be. I I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition, slander, gossip and arrogance and disorder. It genuinely hurt Paul to have to think about what might be. The list in verse 20 of the things that Paul had actually seen, you can look back in 1 Corinthians, you see it's the same, very similar list, stuff that he's seen on his second visit when he came to Corinth. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Was he going to come back and find this all over again? And now have to deal with it ever more severely? 
Verse 21, he continues again. I'm afraid that when I come again, my my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity and sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul would be so humbled. Literally, it's a humiliated word there. The church that he had established, the great apostle Paul who'd done all these journeys, that he comes back and he finds a church who had ignored God's word. But his fears in both 20 and verse 21 are rooted in love for this church. I guess many of you, if you're involved in ministry, just being a Christian, being, being in a church where you've, you, you, you're accountable to people and you're, you're having conversations with friends, you will have experienced this. And if you haven't, be prepared. If you're involved in leading a small group, a Bible study, one-to-one with friends, even Sunday school, you will know that as you teach God's word to each other, even in friendship groups, as you teach God's word and encourage each other, there will be moments that will give you the most uplifting and joyful times as you see people hearing God's word and responding. Honestly, it's just wonderful, isn't it? You can have the most joyful and uplifting times. When you see the fruit of the Spirit manifest and and grow in someone's life, there is honestly no greater joy. But the other side of the coin is that when you get close to people's lives, it is also likely that you will know sorrow and a heartbreak beyond anything that you will have ever felt. Paul longs for these teachers in Corinth and the church in Corinth to repent and to turn back to Christ. And it's, it, you can see it, you can hear it, his fears in verse 20 21. Uh, this is emotionally exhausting for him. It's utterly heartbreaking to see those that you love turn their backs on God. There have been times when as elders we've been encouraging individuals, reading the Bible with them, and they turn their back on God. People have decided to ignore God's word in areas of life and choose to live life their own way. It's brutal. And it's heartbreaking. I know some of you here have experienced that with friends. But that is ministry. Paul was trying to love and to rescue this church and he needed them to see him for who he was and to begin to listen to him. And he's shown them these markers that he is the true, uh, authentic apostle in his endurances, in in his integrity and in his authority as well. Let me finish, if I may, friends, with just a quick note. If you look down at verse 20 and 21, you'll see lists of vices that were rampant in the church in Corinth. That may describe you. Listen to God and lovingly, as he lovingly speaks to you through his word. Let his spirit work in your hearts because you may be going through a difficult time. You may know someone who's going through a difficult time. My encouragement as Paul's is don't run from God. Don't run. Let people in, let God in. Paul, despite this church's lack of respect, what does he do? He just sticks by them. 
He loves them. His integrity as a man of God shines through to them. And he sacrifices everything for them. And his heart is wrought for these people. What is he doing there? He's doing exactly what Christ has done for each one of us. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's um, The Magician's Nephew in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe series. The little boy named Diggory meets Aslan. Aslan's the Christ figure. And Diggory's mother is sick and he wants to ask for Aslan's help, but he's afraid. Aslan. And Lewis writes this. Up till then he had been looking at the lion's great feet and his huge claws. Now in his despair he looked up at its face. And what he saw him surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and wonder of wonders. Great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears comparing to Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must be really sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan. I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. What a world of comfort there is bound up in those words. I know. Christ knows. Whatever you are going through. My friends, we need to dare to come to him. Even in our greatest weaknesses, please remember that he will come close to weak people and sufferers like you and me because he is the great sufferer. And he knows Come to him in your weakness and know his transforming and sustaining power in your life. Let's pray. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord God, we thank you very, very much that you speak to us through your word. We would not know, know these truths today if you had not revealed them to us and spoken them to us by your spirit into our hearts. In our weaknesses and in our struggles, please help us to know wholly this truth and to lean on you our Lord and our Saviour, our Rock and our Redeemer, so that your great strength might shine through our lives and be a light to the nations. Amen.